0: Welcome to The Burial Plot Horror Podcast with Brenda Tolian and Joy Yaley.
1: Welcome to The Burial Plot, where we bring you the darkest and most thrilling tidbits of the horror genre and those who create it. I'm Joy Yaley, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Brenda Tolian. Brenda, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. We got um, a New Orleans thunderstorm going through. So if you hear thunder, I'm not magic. It's actually happening outside the window.
1: Oh, but that's very cool. That will add some ambiance to our podcast today. So I'm all for thunder and lightning. I don't get much of that where I am. You know that it's very dry here in Colorado. And if we do get a thunderstorm, it's not a good thing because it usually ignites a wildfire. So also (laughs) not a good thing. (laughs) True. Today, listeners, we are very, very excited. Um, we're going to visit with author Evie Knight. Brenda and I had the pleasure of meeting her, and we also heard her read at StokerCon in Denver this past May. Evie is the author of the Bram Stoker award-winning debut novel, The Fourth Whore. She released her sophomore novel, Children of Demeter, as well as a novella, Pardom, in 2021. This year, her novella, Three Days in the Pink Tower, released just this month. She also has stories featured in several various anthologies this year. Evie is lucky to live in one of America's most haunted cities, Savannah, Georgia. When not searching for the ghosts of the past, Evie can be found at home with her husband, Matt, her beloved Chinese crested gozer, Augustus, and their three naughty pink Mm cats. Welcome to the burial pot, Evie.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sphinx
1: cats. Tell me about that. That sounds fascinating.
2: Right? Um, So I have three Sphinx cats. um, Started with the idea of just how kind of creepy, cool they were. And so I always really thought they were so, so cool and beautiful. And I really wanted one. And um, I got my first one. And they have such personalities and so much energy. And they're really very dog-like, um, almost like puppies all the time. They are not like aloof cats. They're definitely wanting to be involved in everything you're doing at all times and, um, super energetic and always jumping and hopping around. And I just fell in love with the breed and, um, and then the breeder, every time she would post that she's having kittens, you know, or post pictures of kittens, I was like, ah, oh, I do maybe just one more, you know, they're so cute. So I ended up um, with three. And then um, my friend, my best friend fell in love with them, too. And it, she has three or four as well. So it's just it's kind of out of control that what well, we started, but um, we love them. And then um, my husband's allergic to fur. So it works out really well. So um, hence when I finally was like, okay, what about just a puppy? And then I promise I'll be done. Um, We had to look into like the hypoallergenic or uh, hairless breeds. And um, I found Gozer and and just fell in love with him. So uh, he works right. He, he works, fits right into the the hairless family.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I have a German shepherd who Mm -hmm. is anything but hairless. (laughs) A dog every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh My other one's a pit bull. She doesn't shed quite as much, but. Right. Uh, the German Shepherd's ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous I, I, hair. Yeah. It's actually quite disgusting. I tell people, "Hey, yeah. I'm sorry. Dog hair is a both a fashion accessory and a condiment at yeah. my house. So if you don't like it, don't come."
2: Yeah, over. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I I had a Newfoundland before I met my husband, and I used to say, um, "We just have tumbleweeds of of dog hair rolling down the hallway," you know. And I was like, "Well, that's just part of of our existence." So, um, yeah, totally.
0: That's my life of the Great Pyrenees. Right? (laughs) God, so
2: bad. Yeah.
1: Not to be gross, but I saw this thing on TikTok where somebody collects the dog hair and then they somehow make it into thread and they, you know, make sweaters and stuff out of their dog's hair. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know about that, but I mean, that's a
2: wonderful thing to do with it rather than throw it away, I guess.
1: I guess I'm weird, but not that weird.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. I know. I was like, I don't know if I could wear a dog sweater, but who knows? Would you wash it? It would smell like right. a dog if you washed it right. Right. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's
1: true. So, Evie, when we met you at mm-hmm. um Con, your reading mm-hmm. was fantastic. Thank you. And I just always like to ask everybody what brought you to write in the horror genre? What was it about that genre that was appealing to you?
2: hmm I I think um I started very young. Uh I I grew up living with my grandmother for quite some time in my my very, very young days. Uh, And she would read me Grimm's brother's fairy tales every night before bed. And, you know, as a kid, you don't maybe realize how morbid they are. They're just like, it was so fascinating. And um, it really sparked my imagination. And I I think I've always since then sort of gravitated towards that kind of weird and spooky and um, just eclectic sort of fantasy that that those fairy tales created and um so just kind of grew up really loving that sort of mysterious dark world what's on the other side kind of a um, idea and um when I got old enough to like really start reading on my own it was always those paperback books on the on the little roundabout at the drugstore you know um and they always had these great crazy looking covers with like spooky doll houses and, you know, women whose faces were falling off and things like that. And it just, just, that's what I was attracted to from the very start. And, um and then as you read them, I, I don't know if this is for most writers, but looking back and you read them and it's like, not only do you, do you love what you're reading, but you're like, I want to do this too. You know, it's that um, you know, I want to write like this. I want to make this story. I want to do a story like this. And just that idea that I, I could maybe tell that kind of a story too. And so, um, then when I found Stephen King and I just really dug into the way he wrote and, um, just really studied his craft and, uh, it just became this, this goal of mine. Like I, I must write a novel at some point in my life and, um, worked really hard toward that. Uh, but it's always just been the, it's been, you know, I don't know if if grandma planted the seed or what, but it's always sort of been my thing, um, that dark side of of the imagination. So
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a grandma yeah. too, so I hope I'm passing yeah. it on to mine. One of them yeah. I know for sure. One granddaughter right. is into it and the other one, eh, not so much, but I think I've at least passed right. on to one of
2: right. them. <laughs> yeah I think I'm the only one in the family but eh, they all look at me funny but that's okay that's all right
1: we're used to funny looks. <laughs> yeah what is your, what is your favorite exactly. thing of, about writing like is it the beat my favorite is starting when I get the idea and it starts to form that's my favorite part what's your favorite part Evie
2: mm-hmm. that's mine too just sort of working that through your head like the before any of it goes on paper you know just getting that idea in your head and then rolling it around in there for a few weeks you know and then and then finding that aha moment in your head where it's like yes this is how it's all going to go together and then to sit down and start writing it um but i'm much better with <laughs> that part you know and, and massive notes and sticky notes from work you know where i'm doing something else like oh oh yeah you know and writing on a piece of sticky note and I'm, i'm I'm probably old enough to just be old school where paper and, and pens are, are my go to. I rarely put notes on my phone, you know, I'm always writing it. So carrying around three or four notebooks falling apart with all my stuff and then sitting down at the end and trying to put it all together into a novel. But I love that. I love that, you know, building this whole new world and, and everything in your brain and collecting, amassing all these notes and putting it all together. That's definitely my favorite part.
0: I was wondering, because you're, um, well, I love the pictures when you put them um, out of your writing room. First of all, that's pretty, (laughs) pretty fantastic. Very wonderful. If you ever get a chance to look at pictures of Evie's writing office, it is amazing. Um, And I, I came to your work um, when I was still in my MFA. And, um it was the fourth horror, and then I got to watch you win and your speech and I was like i was I was so, so happy for you because it was so deserved, and then immediately after that, like you're boom boom boom, putting out new works, um you remind me um in a way every time you're posting something you kind of re- remind me of the prolific uh uh ability to put out work like josh mallerman i mean you just you i'm like how does she find time to like so is that it you're doing um when you can you're you know writing on post-it notes Mm -hmm. at work like how how do you Mm -hmm. find that time because i know you're a very busy person and you go to um you go to cons and you, you know, you travel and do different things. Um, your work ethic is amazing. Like, um, is that just like, a you know, are you really, right. do you set times to write or are you just kind of like writing when it comes to you? And
2: right. Uh, you know, it's funny people say that and, and in my mind, I'm constantly like, um, self-criticizing, like you're you're being lazy today, you you need to get up and do something. And I, I don't know if it's like a bit of an ADHD problem that I have, you know, I've never been diagnosed, but sometimes I think, oh, I must have something like that because it's this inability to just sit and, and relax. And I know that I need it. And sometimes I'll run myself, you know, to the point where I'm like, I, you know, my husband has to take me by the shoulders and be like, these, these due dates, are your own. Like you have set these Mm -hmm. dates. No one else has given you these due dates, but you, so stop, stop, stop. Um, and it's just, just, this need almost to, I don't know, like it's not healthy. I, it's not, I don't know. Um, it's not a, uh, sorry. I'm, I'm at work, um, right now. So if you can hear the overhead page, sorry about that, but, um, okay. Um, it's, it's just this constant, like, it's always in my head. There's always stuff in my head. And, um, and even, like I said, you're right at work. I, I always have notes written. I'll send my husband things like, Oh, I just had an idea for a story. And, um, and I just think it's this need, or or maybe from having won the Stoker with my first novel, it's almost like, Oh no, I set myself up for this this expectation that I'm going to be able to do this all the time. And um, I I think I just push myself more than it's healthy. So it's not something that I celebrate at all. It's this, almost this need to like, I have to prove myself in some way. And, and I think women probably in general struggle with that a lot, you know, Um, talking a little bit before we started recording about women and in anything, I think women in any, in anything, any, um, profession, uh, is this, this constant need to like prove yourself or something. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm always writing. I'm always putting something down, just feeling that need to do it. And if I'm sitting still, I, I feel like guilty almost that I'm sitting still. So, uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I get know. that. I feel. That's I probably not a good way. answer,
2: but that's my unfortunate. <laughs> no,
1: I mean it makes a lot of sense. We have another friend who also is a. She's constantly Elena Gomel. She's constantly, constantly publishing. Like every time I turn around, she's got a new published piece out, and I'm like, God, how do you do this? I've been working on this same stupid novel for a year and can't seem to keep my bum in the chair. And she has a similar <laughs> experience to yours, where she she told me that she feels like she has to. Um, prove her worth by how much she produces almost. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think a lot of women have that feeling. I think I'm kind of lucky because I'm kind of on the, I'm more of in the camp of the elders, I like to say, <laughs> mm-hmm. where I really don't feel that anymore. Even though I have a yes. house full of teenagers, I, I'm like, it's cereal for dinner. Or no, we have a fend for yourself nights. <laughs> they have to get their own right. dinner and stuff. No, I mean, and- and I don't feel guilty about right. it. I used yeah. to. Oh, my God.
2: I, I have my Right. I know. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't I, know. I don't I don't know. It is that drive that it's not healthy. It's definitely not healthy. Um, <laughs> but I don't know what I would do. Like, I just can't sit still. I can't. <laughs> I can't.
1: Well, it's good that you're channeling into something productive, right? Right. Right, right, society, right. Which yeah. Which is fantastic. And so... Bringing us back around to your writing, I did want to talk about your latest release, Mm -hmm. which is Three Days in the Pink Tower. Mm -hmm. And I did want to tell you that I read Mm -hmm. it in one sitting in one morning, a Saturday morning, um, drinking coffee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I had moments where I I literally could feel my insides creeping. And there was one particular scene Mm -hmm. where I thought I might be sick (laughs) and had to put the book down for a little bit. And I wept just like a baby. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. This is um, My husband can attest to this because he was sitting in the other armchair watching me do this. And he's like, what in the heck are you reading? I hold up your book and he's like, oh. (laughs) And I think what made it even more visceral for me is that I know that it was inspired or based on a real life Mm -hmm. experience that you had as a young girl. And Mm -hmm. I think that Mm -hmm. was very impactful to me. Um would you like to tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the um inspiration for this story
2: sure um so the when I was seventeen um it was in fact i mean the dates that I give in the book are exactly the the date um it was june twenty sixth uh, my brothers i had two younger brothers, so my mom and dad had separated uh I don't recall if they had officially divorced yet, but they were living separate. And, um, and my brothers and me were with my mom and, uh, they had just left the week before to summer camp. So it was just me at home. And, uh, my mom was working single mom, you know, working on like midnight shifts. And uh, I think at that point she might be, have she might have started back to school she was just gone a lot. So, um, that day, so they they were separated and she posted an ad in the local newspaper uh to sell her her wedding band set her, her engagement and wedding band set and um you know back then there was no internet or anything so that was the way you do it you know you post something there and um and you put your phone number and people will call and um this guy called a couple times and she was getting ready for work and, and wanted to come and see these rings at the house. And she kept saying, no, no, you know, I gotta, I have to go to work. I can't do it today. Maybe tomorrow. Well, a couple of times when he called, I would answer. Cause you know, I'm a teenager. So of course all the phone calls in the house were for me. Right. So I would answer the phone and be like, Oh, hold on a minute. Um, so he was like, well, what about the girl that answered the phone? Could she, could I come and get them from her? And my mom was like, no, no, no. Uh, no one's going to be here she's going she won't be home either um no you'll just have to wait till tomorrow so she said ultimately this guy was like really persistent and so she said listen i'll take him to work with me she worked at a donut shop in town um and she said i'll take him with me and uh if you want to come there tonight you can see him otherwise i'll be home tomorrow you can see him there so he's like okay well i'll come tomorrow can i have your address and and she's like yeah i gave him the address and uh was getting ready for work. And she actually said to me, you know, I have this really weird, I just have a bad feeling. Um, And she had bought a gun after her and dad separated. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, also it was still that whole satanic panic thing going on. And uh, uh, so she was convinced that, you know, uh, we would be, we'd need it. So she had a little handgun she had bought and kept it in her nightstand. And she was like, let me, let me show you how to, load it. Let me show you how to use it. And I was like, mom, get out of here. Like, go away. This is ridiculous. Um, but I was planning to go out that night. I was going to go out with some friends. Uh, and, uh, basically she was just like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so she ended up, I was just telling her, told her, get out of here, go. And I was going to meet her at work that night and have dinner with her on her break and then go out with my friends. And, um, so she left and about two minutes after she left the doorbell rang and it was the guy and he was like, yeah, I'm here to see the rings. And I was like, Oh gosh, no, you know, um, you misunderstood. And so we had this whole conversation basically there's the scene in the book where he shows up at the house. Um, I changed it to him. I think they ran out of gas or something, but it was the same sort of thing just show up at the house. So that whole scene is exactly, um, what happened. Uh Basically a lot of small talk, a lot of like, oh, I gotta call my boss, you know, telling me that um him and his friend were were buyers for a like a used like used warehouse kind of thing where they sell like antiques and used goods and they were out buying wedding stuff. And um basically back and forth he had to call his boss and see what he could do about it and da-da-da. Was using our phone a few times and finally, um, asked for a drink of water and uh and him a drink of water and um then he was like okay I'll be on my way and went to put the water down and and I turned around and he was right behind me with a gun and uh and said you know we need money and uh I was <laughs> 17 a mom my mom is a single mom you know working Two, 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 three jobs. Like, we don't have, like, I don't have money to give you. And uh, trying to come up with something because I really thought, you know, there was a gun pointed at me and I'm um, trying to panically think of something. And while well, my dad will be home in a few hours, so I could ask him and give you money, you know, I won't tell, it's, you know, you don't need to do anything. It says, well, we can't just sit here and wait for your dad, you know, to come home. Like, what if somebody drives by and they sees this car and they're going to start wondering who that car belongs to? and you know, it's best if you come with us. And so that's how I ended up in the car with them. And we'll just drive around for a few hours and, you know, when your dad gets home and, and then we'll bring you back here, you get the money and we'll leave. So we get in the car and, um, almost immediately he says, well, you got to lay your head in my lap because, um, because we're in your neighborhood and somebody might see you leaving with a couple of guys. And then what do you think they're going to think of you? So it's probably best if you just lay your head in my lap and, and then uh, not long after that, it was, well, you know, maybe what we ought to do is is mess around a little, uh, and that way we'll be sure that, you know, you, you don't tell anybody about all this, and we can let you go at the end of it then, because we'll know that you can't tell, and, um, you know, just priding himself on how clever this whole idea was, and, and how he had it all figured out. and calling uh his friend by like several different names the whole time and he would like elbow me and say you see you see how i called him dave and then i called him oscar and then i called him phil um you see because that way you'll never know what his real name is so we got this all figured out don't worry about it don't worry about it and then uh and then you know just kept saying we just need money we're from a different state we just need money to get home for gas and that's all we're trying to do and Um, you know, uh, as things went on, just, well, maybe you should, you know, maybe we should just start messing around now and, uh, you know, trying to force some things in the car, which, again, I, at that point, I was so scared, you know, there's a gun laying between us the whole time, and just a lot of, you know, me just begging a lot, a lot the whole time, And, and about, I don't know, where we were when, the one stops, the driver stops and he gets gas and he gets back in and he says, Hey, I just had an idea. My uncle owns a hunting cabin, not too far from here. What if we went there? We could mess around a while and then we'll get you back. And uh, so that's how we ended up at the cabin. And it really was pink. It was really, uh, it was really Pepto-Bismol pink, the whole entire thing, the door, the, the, and just has always sort of invaded my dreams. This, this pink glowing cabin in the woods. And I don't know if I could, you know, identify it today. If you took me to it, I I don't remember, you know, the shape of it. I don't remember, you know, the surroundings other than I remember there were woods on three sides of the cabin and this just this glowing pink thing in the middle of the woods that that became, you know, my prison for um, the rest of that day and night. And then uh, they actually did end up I kept telling them, you know, I was supposed to meet my mom, I was supposed to meet my mom, and they ended up taking me back to the house, uh, and um, the one got out of the car, and this is not, this is where the book and my real life deviate, but um, the one got out of the car and came in the house with me, and uh, had me strip all my clothes off, put them in the washing machine while he watched, took me upstairs, told me to get in the bathtub, watched me, like, wash, Telling me, make sure you know, wash this part, wash that part, and um, basically just said, Hey, you know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be up this way hunting again, maybe next year. You know, maybe we give you a call, you can come with us again. Like it was just a big date, you know, and uh. Uh, at that point, I'm just, yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, and then he's like, okay, well, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks a lot. Just chalk it up to a learning experience. He kept saying, just chalk it up to a learning experience. Just think, just think all the new tricks you can show your boyfriend the next time you see him. And, um, and I heard the door shut and I sat in that bathtub for, I don't, I don't know how long cuz I was I was like this is a trick like this is them testing me you know uh there's no way he left me like I saw these guys like no way and I um finally couldn't sit in there anymore you know it was ice cold tub and I got out and like looked around my house and they really were gone like I didn't see them and I was but I was convinced they were like waiting somewhere you know they were testing me because they kept telling me you know if if you tell um we know where you live. We know your phone number. You know, we, we know you, we know that you have a mom, like we know where your mom works. We'll find you and, and kill you. And, um, you know, all these horrible things. And so I was just convinced that this was all a trick. Like this was a test of some sort. So uh, I got in my car and I drove straight to where my mom worked thinking I got to get there. You know, I'm late for dinner (laughs) I got to get there. She's going to be freaking out, but how am I going to like hide this from her? How am I going to? Cause I, I really, truly thought they were watching me. And, um, I got there and I, I walked in thinking, you know, I had myself cool and collected and I walked in the door and my mom looked up and was like, what, what happened to you? It, she just, you know, whatever was on my face. Um, and I just completely lost, like I couldn't, I couldn't, so I lost it. And, uh, just kind of fell on the ground at the donut shop and started like crying and saying, you know, what happened? And, uh, everybody at the shop was like, um, and so everybody kind of like left and my mom, I remember her coming out and like sort of dragging me around, um, the corner on behind the the counter and, and me insisting that we all get down because they were watching you know and I was like everybody has to you know I can't let them see me and so like would not wouldn't stand up and so my mom had to call the police and they had to come in and sort of like drag me um to the back because I was so so sure they were watching and um you know in the in the two officers that came was an older guy and a rookie and I just I remember the older guy saying, you know, you have to go to the hospital, you have to have these tests done and then we're going to we want to drive you around, we want you to try to show us where you think you were and um I was like no, I can't. I can't leave from back behind here like they're watching and he's like no, no, no. And he grabbed me and he said, "Listen, you know, you did nothing wrong. We're going to walk out of here side by side like a lady and a gentleman because that is what you are and you are safe and you are going to walk out of here with your head held high because you did nothing wrong and like I wish I knew now like who he, you know, I wish there was some way to ever find him and, and tell him how much that meant to me because like, just having this guy, you know, you are a lady and you, you did nothing wrong and you're gonna walk out of here with your head held high because you are a lady. And I, you know, we're going to walk out of here like a lady and a gentleman. And It just meant so, so much to me that, um, you know, he made me feel safe and, and took me to the hospital and went through all of the, that horrible testing and, all that and then spent the night pretty much in the cop car driving all around trying to find this place and and we couldn't I mean I had no idea where I had been or anything and um and so went home and uh actually went home that night with my mom and I was sleeping in bed with her and our phone rang at about midnight and they asked for me and it was a guy and they asked for me and my mom was like who who is this and um Bob this babu and it's like just let me talk to her and she's like you go to hell and hung up and then I was like that was it that was my sign you know they let me know that they knew and I was panicked and ended up we had to leave the house and I went and lived moved in with my aunt for the rest of the summer and lived with her um just because I couldn't be back at that house and um a few days later um the, well the night that night uh the one the guy that had been driving the one I call slither in the in the story, um, he was at a bar and was talking to some friends. And he said, you know, I think I might be in trouble. And the friend was like, why? And he's like, well, you know, basically, you know, we got this girl and we raped her. And uh, and um, I drove past her house later. And, uh, and, oh, it was, so he, his friend, the one that got, went in the house with me, told the driver that when he was in the house with me, he had um, smashed my head up against the bathtub and drowned me in the tub and left me dead. And so he was like, it's all good. She's dead, she's never, you know. And he says to his friend, you know, uh, I drove back past the house and her car wasn't there. And so I think, I think I might be in trouble. And the friend's like, okay, so here's what we do. We'll call the police station. We'll ask if a rape has been reported. And if not, you're good to go. And if so, then we'll figure it out. And he's like, okay. So his friend called the police station and said, Hey, you know, from this bar, Hey, has a rape been reported today? And the cops are like, "Um, yeah, actually, yes, there was one reported. What do you know about it? And his friend just basically turned him in. So they showed up and got him right there at the bar. And then uh, it took a few more days to find the the guy that had, the, the one I called Flat Top, the one that was sitting in the back seat with me. Um, and they ended up arresting him at the mall, at the local mall. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so they both told completely different stories. Um, they they weren't in sync at all. The one there, you know, said, I, I basically said, I'll do whatever, you know, you came for the, these rings, but really could use that money. So I'll do whatever it takes for the money. So just let me go with you. And the other one said I kind of <laughs> I forced myself into the car with them and just said, listen, I, I'm bored. I wanted it's Friday night. Let's go do something fun. And I kind of forced myself on them. Um and so that was their stories. And it was again it was going into my senior year of high school and it had happened, the kidnapping um, at gunpoint had happened in, in my home county and then the rape was in a different county they had driven me far enough and so I ended up looking at like four potential pre-trials you know one for each of them in each county and then four or two trials as well then um, because they were f- refusing to be tried together and um, so I did a bunch of pre-trial hearings and, you know, sort of, they both pled not guilty and uh, did a lot of that. And then, um, you know, a lot of, well, you know, what did you say? What were you wearing? What, you know, all those things, you know, that they, that you hear about, you know, well, why didn't you, did you notice if the door of the car that, you know, on your side was unlocked? Well, why didn't you jump out? Well, why didn't you say, you know, why didn't you scream, to the gas station attendant. And, um, you know, why didn't you quote, take a bite out of crime when, when it was in your mouth and, you know, well, there's a gun at my head the whole time. So I, you know, I didn't think about all those things. Um, So, yeah, it makes you feel really, really, really bad. And and there was points in that whole process where I started feeling super guilty. Like I had, ruined their lives. Cause I had lied to them. I told them I wasn't going to tell, you know, and I did tell. And so that's why they were in jail. So I had to go through, I went through this period of time where like I ruined somebody's life because I put them in jail. And so I remember talking to my mom and my therapist about how, like, could I go visit them? And could I, you know, take them a gift basket? <laughs> like I wanted to make these care baskets for them. And, um, you know, my therapist was like, no, 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 no. You know? And my mom was just appalled, like horrified, you know? And I think some of my family members are like starting almost doubting me for a moment. Like, is her story, like, is she, is this right? Like, what is she doing? Like, cause I really did go through this period of time where I, I was crying cause I put these guys in jail and um, you know, it's my fault and I did all this. And um, you know, looking back now, you realize it was when I was a kid and two, that's just the way you're made to feel. I don't know, there's questions and everything. You're just start to feel like, Oh my God, did I lead them on? Did I, you know, I didn't officially say no, you know, I had a gun on my, so I was saying yes to whatever it was they wanted. And um, it took a long time for me to, to learn that, that that's just, you know, that's normal, but um, yeah, a long, long time for me to, to come to terms with there really wasn't anything that i did like there was absolutely nothing that i did wrong in that situation but um you know a lot of questions come at you from a lot of different people about what you know what you could have done differently why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that um but yeah so ultimately they were looking at about 52 years and um and they got seven <laughs> Um, five of which was, was for kidnapping with a gun and then the two for the rape. Um, and that was all together from the two different counties. Like they allowed them to serve everything con- concurrent instead of consecutive. So there was a lot of time, but they put it all together for them because it was their first offense. So, um, that was really hard for me to, to like come to terms with all of that. For I felt like I went through all of that for like nothing, you know? And, uh, so Seven years came and I, you know, went back and spoke to the parole board and ended up getting, uh, kept keeping them in for 10 and then at 10 years they got out. And, um, one, the, uh, the one I call Slither violated parole multiple times and ended up back in jail. And I think he's pretty much been there for life. Um, the time of them notifying me where they are and everything has run out. So I I don't know where they are now. I don't know. Um, but yeah um, Slither wrote a letter to me and the, um, the attorney, it was, um, he wasn't my attorney. He was the, uh, the, whatever, can't think of what it's called, but the state's attorney, um, while he was in jail for a college course, uh, sent me both to us a letter just saying, you know, that he had, um, you know, he had found God and, uh, repented for cheating on his wife, basically. Like, that's what he acknowledged that he did wrong. And he hoped that I could forgive myself for my role in it. And it was this ridiculous letter that, um, that he sent. So, yeah, they never, I don't think either one of them ever came around to any self-realization from it. Um, I was just remember being super mad that he was taking college courses in prison and I was working and going to college, you know, trying to make ends meet and he was, he was getting college for free. And so um, I just remember being super angry about that and it, you know, whatever, but um, yeah, they, their basic, their, their whole thing the whole time was, yeah, well, we cheated on our wives. So that's, that's what we did wrong. And We feel bad for that, but that was the only thing they admitted to, to doing so. Um, But yeah, so uh, that's, that's the, the end, the real end in a nutshell, which is kind of a letdown and a bummer. And I didn't want it to end that way because I just felt that they deserved more than what they got. So I rewrote the story in the way that I wanted it to end. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) that you're (laughs) sorry. I know that was a really long, you can,
1: it's infuriating. Um, Mm -hmm. in my experience, uh, when we were going through criminal trials, because one of my family members was violently assaulted by someone, Mm -hmm. um, it really felt to me like we just kept getting re-victimized over and over and over at trial and nobody heard that that was happening to us. Um, and it was almost right. to the point where okay. I just wanted to give up. I'm like, I don't even want to show up to another hearing night. What is the point? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. using work for this and I'm here for this. And um, luckily my husband <laughs> had more fortitude yeah. than I did and he never let it go. But the person who mm-hmm. perpetrated this on my loved one got work release, never spent a night in jail over it. Yeah. And yet my... My loved one who was assaulted has lifelong,
2: right, a life sentence. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I felt too. Like it's a life <laughs> sentence. It is, you yeah. know, murder is horrible, horrible, right? And it's terrible. But rape and and assaults like this, the almost feel worse because it, it's taken your life away but left you alive. So at the yeah. same time, like it it totally killed the part of you but left you alive to deal with it you know and and I I would never I'm not saying at all that being a murder victim is is not as bad but it it, I think that sometimes it's easy to go well at least you survived you're like I did but now I have a whole ton of of craziness to deal with for the rest of my life and 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 constantly being questioned and constantly having to try to explain reactions that you have now to things that are so innocuous, you know, like uh, for a very long time, I don't know why, but like uh, I had this side effect where I really believed that every time a car passed me on the highway, they were going to shoot me. And so once they got up to that point, like I would just have these horrible panic attacks. So driving became this awful thing. And I'm just, still not a fan. Like, I still don't like to drive. I would always prefer to like hand it over to my friend, my husband, whoever we're with, I don't want to drive. And I would flinch every time someone passed me. And it, there's no reason for, it. I'm like, at no point were we in separate cars or I, I can't explain it, but it was this horrible thing that I took with me. And I, you know, there were days where I would like lock myself out of my own house with my, with my, you know, cordless phone because again we didn't have cell phones at the time cordless phone and a knife and sit on my front porch with a cordless phone and a knife until someone came home because I convinced myself there was someone in my house so it was like nights where I spent hours with nothing just sitting on the you know and like nobody sees that you know nobody sees those moments because you're not you don't want to talk about them you don't want to share those with anybody because you feel dumb like there's a part of you that knows the way you're acting is not necessarily rational you can't help it and um it's like it just takes so much you know and I remember my mom saying to me at one point they killed my daughter because you aren't the same person that you were before it happened and I know she didn't mean it in in any way to hurt me but that hurt me so bad like and I just like constantly trying to figure out how do I become her daughter again? Like, how do I, what do I need to do? I don't know. Like, and I felt like she was telling me you're not, you're not my daughter, but it's not what she was saying. And she didn't right. mean it that way, but I took it that way. And, and so, yeah, like there's so much it destroys of you and there is, and, and nobody and seems to the other
1: thing like with, you know, newspaper accounts just don't even like if, if people knew the realities of these types of things that happen to people like the deep mm-hmm. dirty gritty detail um i think mm-hmm. things would be handled differently honestly because you don't you do, the normal public doesn't see that the normal public hears the word rape mm-hmm. and they have like a little mm-hmm. envisionment of what that is but they really have no idea what the intimate detail Mm-mm. of that looks like or Mm-mm. feels like Mm-mm. and right. i think you writing this book is. It, powerful in that way because you don't pull any punches Mm -hmm. you tell us everything you lay it bare and we go through it with you Mm -hmm. and that was why I wept for part of this book and had to put it down because I was just like that girl oh my god she's 17 years old that is a baby I have two 15 year old twins I've raised two girls I I was devastated and heartbroken for you um I mean, as a woman, we all have had those times where maybe we've, you know, had a sexual advance and it makes you feel so uncomfortable, but to be so deeply violated. And and being 17, mm-hmm. what experience do you have in sex, period, right? And then here's all this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mm-hmm. an overwhelming read, but it was, I think it was important that you didn't pull punches and you laid it out for mm-hmm. to see.
2: Um I appreciate it because that's definitely something that, I struggled with, this. like, how, 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 how do I do this? Like, how, how in depth, and I, I know, I got a little, you know, even publishers and editors that looked at it, you know, my beta readers, everybody that looked at it beforehand was like, whoa, are are you sure? Should we, should we cut this? And uh, I said, no, <laughs> no, Mm-mm. we're not cutting it. Like, it just felt like you, like you said, I need, I needed you to understand, like, I need you to understand that, like, it really, like, there was a scene and and maybe this is I don't know giving it I don't know there was a scene where at one point and this really happened in the rape that the one decided that it was constant both of them at the same time the whole time every time like it went on for hours one time the the one was performing oral sex on me and I just remember like one it felt like he opened his mouth and and just poured maggot's onto me because that's all I could feel like this squirmy squishy wetness, (laughs) and also this idea of what what is he doing why like what is why would he do this like I don't want you to do that like I don't you're not I don't want you to try to make me feel good like why would you do that like what are you getting out of it and it and and it has affected me like for a long time like even now you know I'm that's something that a woman a woman enjoys and, and, and wants from a partner and I get very, there's only, you know, I, it still affects my sex life because I still think of that moment. Like that is a horror moment now in my life. It's not something sexy to look forward to. And so it's really hard sometimes. They're like, no, I can't, I can't, sorry. You know? And it's, yeah, it's just, that's what it is. Like that whole moment is not just like having sex you don't want to have. It's it is a. It's this monstrous violation of, of everything private and, and sacred to you. And I just felt like it was really important to put it there. And, and, and and it's all very raw form.
1: I I think that was a very good choice.
2: Um, thanks.
1: I think you were very brave to do so. And I appreciate that you've done it because most of the times that's glossed over. And I think that rape has been a trope in horror. Um, Mm -hmm many, many times. But most of the time, it's told Mm -hmm. from the viewpoint of a man. Not that men write that it's a great thing. Not at all. But I think only a woman who's experienced it could actually make us, like I said, I felt like my insides were literally crawling at times reading Mm -hmm. this. Um,
2: That's what it feels like.
1: I think what you've done here is you've, you've taken that trope and you've put a different gaze on it that is even more horrific than anything I think I've ever read in that main you you did a masterful job of making me be there with josie who's the character but knowing somewhere in the back mm-hmm. of my mind that i was with evie and i was just devastated like absolutely devastated reading this i was just um i cried i had to put the book down for a little bit because i was bawling no, um so just because i could feel it so viscerally you know
0: I, mm-hmm. don't you think don't you think a lot of readers are having that reaction? Um, because what is it? Every 63 seconds or something in the U S or the, the,
2: the statistics mm-hmm. are crazy. Every six seconds. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every six seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A woman is,
0: is raped. Um, I know that, um, from the book to actually reading the articles, um, about, you know, your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, for reasons that I've I've shared, you know, with you, Um, Mm -hmm. it was, uh, it's visceral and it's real. But the thing about it is, is uh, in horror, so often, again, a lot of times it's written um, from a male gaze, and they aren't talking about those times that you vacate your body. They aren't talking Mm -hmm. about those times where you can't, you know, the the sheer terror or, or having to do whatever is necessary to stay alive you know when mm-hmm. women are doing mm-hmm. everything necessary to stay alive and then mm-hmm. um, and then what happens if they if they even catch the person mm-hmm. what a family what uh what what a victim goes through when they go through court because mm-hmm. it's one of the hardest things to prove and they will they will rape you again in <laughs> they, court they
2: absolutely will
0: they will mm-hmm. they and there's yeah, nothing, were. there's nothing you can do to stop it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then mm-hmm. they get the shorter. Oh yeah. And then they get probation you know. or mm-hmm. they get therapy yeah. because they, mm-hmm. they didn't understand their actions and they damn well did right. or, or whole communities rise up to support them because they're upstanding in the community or something. I just, mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. Yeah. honestly, I wish, I wish after something like that happened, we could just hunt them down. Through the woods, you know, Um, right? Because because like as you were talking about, and like in the situation, you know, that's that's touched my family. You never feel quite one hundred percent safe, you know. Um, Especially if especially if it ended up in the news, you aren't safe all the time from news, you know, reporters and. And, stuff. and it, it is a perpetual, it's like a perpetual torture machine of the body. It just goes mm-hmm. on and on. It never mm-hmm. stops. And, yep. And, you know, all your writing is, is very um, brave in that way. Um, it might be horror, but it also is is brave because you're talking about things that women don't often get to talk about. In all of your books, you're touching on topics Mm -hmm. that have remained taboo that women have been told to shut up about, Um, Mm -hmm. and if it is talked about, it's you know through through male authors who, who, for the most part, don't understand. um, Right. You know. um, Mm -hmm. So I find I find your your writing is incredibly brave, incredibly talented, but you know. And I think that makes you a special kind of writer. I think you, um, that makes you, I mean, a writer for everybody, but it especially makes you our champion. (laughs) Um, And I'm not kidding about that. Um, I really, really admire your bravery and your skill. You know, Um, I I, I can't say there's... (laughs) I really can't I can't say there are many women writers out there um like you currently and I hope you know I mean that from the bottom of my heart.
2: I mean it. Um I don't <laughs> you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm not good with this um yeah, I just I don't know. I think uh what happened left me with a lot of anger and um I a lot of life that happened to me after the fact based on my, you know, I don't know, like a lot of the insecurities that left me with a lot of the, um, the things, like I said, like I'm still dealing with like this ability, this, this absolute need to say, I, I am a writer. I know I, I wrote one, but like, I got to keep writing or else I'm not relevant. And, um, all these things. I mean, I, I, I've, I've gone through a couple really bad relationships, you know, I ended up pregnant in college. Um, I have a beautiful, beautiful daughter to, to, um, to show for it. And I'm, I'm not sorry at all. It made it definitely harder uh, for everything because I made some really dumb choices. Like I, I chose men for a while after that, that uh, were just as bad as these guys, but they were bad with me. And so they were going to keep me safe. You know Um, that was, you know, fight fire with fire. Right. So you pick a guy that, it's just a mess. But, um, you know, he's bad and he's not afraid to fight. And he's not afraid to get into these situations because, you know, he'll keep me safe. And then realizing what a dumb thing that was. And and my daughter, you know, that pregnancy um, was not a good time at all in regards to what I was trying to do with my life. But also it saved my life because um being her mom has made me go, one, I have a daughter, right? I can't let this happen. Like, I can't, keep living like this and showing her that this is how you respond to these things in your life. Like I have to, I have to be a mom to this daughter and raise her. And, um, so thank God for that, I guess. But, um, yeah, I, I made some really dumb choices and I ended up married for 14 years to a a gaslighter who would constantly tell me that everything I felt was wrong and, and, and foolish. and, And, um, and I believed it for a long time until again, I don't, I don't know. Like he ended up uh, another long story, but, uh, while I was writing the fourth whore, actually, which is probably where you hear, feel all this anger coming out, um, uh, ended up cheating on me. Uh, and we were a small town and, you know, he was a physician and I was a physician and she, she was a nurse. And so everyone knew my whole business yet again in my life, all this stuff come pouring back. And I, and, and I, I think that's where, you know, it it brought it all back to me. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a victim again. Like, no, what am I doing? You know? And I had to really re-examine um, myself and, and I'm in a wonderful place now. And I have this wonderful husband is so supportive. And, and um, you know, and that's when I was like, okay, it's time. I have this, I have this, I'm surrounded by love and support. And I, I, I finally, um, you know, I don't know. I got, I feel like I got a lot of anger and rage out with the fourth whore and um and and then got this response from from you know my peers that was like yeah good good you know because who knew there was a lot of people that didn't want to touch that book as well because like you said there's a lot of things in there that that um there's just like that angry woman book and uh and then I was like I think it's time it's time to drag all that out of the closet and really face it face it you know and um and take it back and make it mine and, and it just seemed like the right time and um and I feel really good about it. I feel and and like you said, i, I it's amazing. I get all these private messages from people that that tell me their story, just like, thank you, I read it and I would, you know, I, I've opened several messages that just start like this. I was 17. I was 15. He was 30. You know, I was this, it was, he was my cousin. Um, you know, I went on a date and this, it just start, they just start. It's like, I open it and there's this story pouring out. And like, thanks for, for writing this and saying, you know, what I couldn't or whatever, but.
0: I think you made us feel heard in a very visceral way. Um. You know, because so often you can't talk mm-hmm. about it, or or you right. talked about it enough because you went through court or whatever, yeah, you know, absolutely, and stuff. But yeah, and we all know the ending, so it's almost like the ending everybody always wanted that has walked right. Yes, you know, um, yeah, because there is a lot of rage. Trauma causes stuff like that. It, it causes fear, and it causes mm-hmm. rage, and it causes. Mm-hmm addiction it causes mm-hmm. all sorts of things to Absolutely. come out you know because there's nowhere else for it to go right you know and so right. being able to put it into written word and into horror mm-hmm. if you're able to do that you know yeah.
2: but that's what I felt like I got to do something right and this is what my this is where my skill set is so this is uh, you know I went I'm in my real life, I'm an OBGYN. So I went into women's health. I did, I did what I could from that standpoint, but I still feel like I had to like, I don't know. I just, I I don't know. I, like I, I said in the introduction, I had, had to tell it, but, but what made mine any different than anybody else's? And, and, and I was like, it doesn't have to be just mine. It can be everybody else's. We can make it, you know, and I just put all these things that that I've heard from other women and that, you know, and just kind of tell everybody's story and, and then make a great ending uh, of revenge. You know, like let's make a really, <laughs> let's get, let's get back at these guys and um, let's, let's make him, let's make them pay. So but
1: even at um, that, I mean, it, it just, it moves beyond just the rape revenge story that we mm-hmm, hear in horror a lot mm-hmm, of times it moves mm-hmm. more into the victim has taken back something that was taken from her. Right. At the end there, the yeah. end scene, it's like, she's not just going to get out of this. She's going to get out of this and she's going to, she's going to be okay, despite what's happening. Right. She's going to take back her,
2: mm-hmm. her power. Mm-hmm. And I think
1: that's the ending that mm-hmm. most of us want, because in real life, these endings are not satisfying.
2: No, um, we, no. we don't, the, the
1: victim doesn't usually get to show back up and chop them up with an ax. I mean, it just, you know, right, right,
2: right, right.
1: Just not, right. and even in and horror, I think, um. Not, not realistic. It's true.
2: No. It's true. Yeah. I struggled a little like exactly where to where to end it and um ultimately I don't know like I like where it ends because I, I without giving that away I just like that there there I mean I think in the end you see that there's definitely still a journey but there's hope. And so I think um that's kind of what I wanted to say. There's definitely still a journey to be made but um, you there is another side there's light on that on that far side that that you can come out of it and um yeah so I'm I'm really I'm really happy with the way it turned out um I'm not sorry for not taking out those scenes and I'm I'm happy that you feel the same way because like I said I did get a, a little pushback on ooh this might be maybe we need to like let them breathe and I was like no no because we don't no one lets us breathe like no one lets us breathe when this happens like nobody's like okay would you need to Need a break? Would you like a drink of water before we move on to the next phase of the rape? Right. No, it doesn't work like that. Um, right. and so yeah, uh you're right, rape is used all the time as a trope, but it's just like, oh, that's that's awful. Rape is terrible, mm-hmm. it's horrible.
1: I mean, um, yeah, it's it's you know, that's a, a real world horror that I don't think people understand right. how horrific it actually is. No.
2: So but- I think until you're you experience it or experience a a loved mm-hmm. one that is you're close to has experienced it that you really get an idea of. Yeah. Like the whole leaving your body thing that really, really does happen. It absolutely happens in the midst of it. Your body just takes over. Like I wish I was an artist because the picture in my head is, is this, this woman in a fetal position where your brain should be right. Just this woman in a fetal position, nude, where your brain should be and then just this uh, shadow outline of a a body walking around automatic because that's how it feels and um you know you're just letting that happen until it's okay for you to kind of stand back up and take back over so so
1: for josie in the book when she sort of has those experiences she she has an experience at the very beginning of the book where she's given a tarot reading and it's not Mm -hmm. very positive Right, and So when she's having these out of body moments, um, mm-hmm. leaving the real leaving the situation in her mm-hmm. mind or whatever she the tarot cards show back up. Mm-hmm. and i was I love that. A while ago, I took a a workshop from Hillary Lefwitch, which is using tarot in writing, and you mm-hmm. do all these different readings to set up plots and to develop characters. and it was fascinating and it was so fun. And I just wondered if you could tell us just a little bit about how you came to be aware of tarot and how you, why you incorporated it into this story.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think the in the beginning, um, Josie talks a lot about you know that whole agnosticism that she's dealing with and this this. Um, interest in, in the mysticism. And and I remember that my aunt at, uh, I don't know, right around that time, 15, 16, had bought me a Ouija board one time for Christmas. And like, I think that just got me into that whole idea. And I was already reading horror, you know. Um, so I've always been fascinated with that. And the um, the tarot, the art of it is so gorgeous and all like so many different spreads and like I don't know. I've always been also one for like symbols and signs from the universe, you know? And so I've always kind of been interested in that. Like, Ooh, I saw this animal multiple times in the last few weeks. What does that mean? You look it up. So, uh, the, the tarot for me has always been fascinating because all that symbolism of what the card means is sort of there, but it, it it's how you interpret those symbols as to what that card means too. So it's like, um, so always has been a fascination for me and the art of tarot to me uh is is so i don't know rich with all this mythos right there's so many mythologies and 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 things that are in there and for you to discover it's, um and i had taken actually a a course um similar to that about using the tarot in writing, and so that had always been in the back of my mind as well and i started collecting tarot decks um for that reason, but also because just the art like if I saw one that really drew me in i and um and then i i uh I had purchased the book not long before I started deciding to write this uh Sasha Graham's book and it was called the Magic of Tarot and I can pull it up because all right anyways um the magic of tarot your guide to intuitive readings rituals and spells so i was like it was time for me to like learn how to use it right because i really wanted to start using it in my writing like like that idea and um one of the quotes right in the beginning of the book is tarot is storytelling it's what we do when we read the cards telling stories imbues us with supernatural power the power to change our story and that quote was like yes yes it does right Because Wherever you are in the moment that you flip that card, and and that's why it works great for storytelling, I think, is because wherever your brain or your mind is at the moment that you flip that card, those are the symbols that are potentially going to stand out to you in that, that picture. So you know a general meaning of the card, um, and then the symbols kind of drive you towards that meaning, but also it's kind of what's happening in your life right now of what symbols you're going to notice. So every time you look at a card, it's amazing how many details that you might not see initially that when you really like start studying, there's all these crazy, like, Oh yeah. And this is why this is on her right. This is why this is here. And, but it's really what's happened to you in that moment that gives that card meaning. And so when I wanted to set up that in the book, I went to like multiple people who really know the tarot really well. And I was like, help me Like, I need a spread that is going to do this. And I was getting all this pushback. Like, well, it it could be this card. It could be, like, they don't tell the, you know. And I really learned a lot about tarot in that moment. And it it just, the more I learned them, the more they were like, well, it really is kind of dependent on what, you know, what their question is. So what's her question? Like, she didn't even want the reading. She just, like, she stumbled into a reading. And they're like, yeah, but it kind of, you know, these... And I'm like, I can make this work. Like, it's even better this way, because it's so open ending nothing, you know, like, not even the worst thing means the worst thing. And uh, it just, it just sort of fell into place. And then it was a matter of, okay, let's pick some that have a a dark meaning, but also can be used in a a different way. And so it was kind of like, use it as foreshadowing but also use it as a guide for her when she got to that point okay let me look at this card again what is it trying to tell me and what can i learn from it because that's really what the idea behind tarot is is like it's not about like oh no this bad thing is about to happen no it's here's a possible outcome here's what you should learn from this and uh yes yeah, so it was just it, like just made perfect sense that it would be the right thing um To do for that, for the book, yeah, and that, it, I'm really happy the way it worked out.
1: Yeah, it and worked that, out great. It was yeah. Like I said, I have an interest in the tarot, and so I was immediately when you when we saw you at StokerCon and you had some little cards for your book. Yeah, right. well, I grabbed one because I'm like, ooh, that looks like a tarot card.
2: <laughs> yes,
1: yes. And the cover does a yeah. tarot card. It's very cool. I know. Um, Is they really did a great job? Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I just want to tell you and that I, I'm grateful to you for telling your story in the way that you did. Thanks. Um, and I think Josie is a little bit more than just what you would think of as a final girl or the rape revenge girl. She's really triumphant. Right. And I think that is
2: mm-hmm.
1: how you come across to me as well, is that not only Thank you. you sur yeah, you survived, but you're alive and you're vibrant and you're doing things that are important and you're affecting other people in positive positive ways. And um I'm just so I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud to know
0: you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot you. of
0: us baby writers are are following you. <laughs> just uh, just you know, you're kind of a story on just how to even handling yourself on social media and and uh in person just you know you're encouraging and everything like that so um I appreciate that a lot and um well
1: and you had on a killer outfit for your your uh <laughs> the, the banquet I right. saw you in the hallway and I was like oh my god that was oh, yeah. amazing Thanks.
2: <laughs> thank you yeah I don't know it was this this year I was like you know what I've been, been a stoker and two years and I'm doing it right this year I am like buying outfits for every day and I'm like doing it up so um yeah that was really fun and uh it was great to be back among like my you know it really rejuvenates you being and that's why uh you mentioned about trying to fit cons in but I think I don't go to as many as some some writers and of course you know that eats away at you like oh you're not you're not doing as much as everybody else why aren't you doing um Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> but it's important, I think, to at least pick one that you're going to go to every year as a writer, because boy, oh boy, do you get the energy from other writers and just the excitement and it just you feed into that creativity, like so much creativity in a room and you're just like, ah, I want it like a energy vampire, right? A creativity yeah. vampire, And I like love going to cons for that reason. And everybody in in the horror world is the nicest people. I don't know what it's like because I don't go to other like the romance, I don't do anything else but horror. I don't know what that's like. But the horror people, man, are they the nicest people in the whole wide world and the most accepting, the most like the least you know competitive? It's just like there's room yeah. for everybody here, so let's all celebrate each other. And I love that about it, and it just feels so so good to be there. So, um, yeah, it's so much fun.
1: It was fun, we had a good time, yeah. Um, so we were honored to hear your reading and we we do like to see if our author guests are willing to read some of their writing for our listeners and we were hoping that you would read something for us
2: yeah
0: yeah yeah all right
2: yeah okay well let's see um i was thinking and i read the beginning at uh at Stoker but I was kind of thinking about reading a little bit of the initial tarot reading since we were kind of talking about tarot if that's okay that's okay with you all right perfect okay so um let's see just find my sorry 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 um uh, so basically where where this is going to start is uh, the very first chapter is kind of just int- um, introducing everyone to Josie and who she is and uh, as a teenager. And so um, it starts out at a carnival and there's a couple kind of weird things that happen to her leading up to this moment. And so she's kind of feeling a little weird about everything and not sort of in a good mindset to go with her friends are going to go ride some rides. and um, so she just decides, okay, go ride the crazy rides. I'm going to, I'm going to take a minute here and just breathe. And, uh, and, and then I'll catch up with you guys and then I'll be okay. I just need a minute um, to sort of come down from all the weird things that had happened so far. Um, so there, her friends have just left her and she's just kind of wandering around like the, the games and things. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, a small girl appears out of nowhere running straight into me. Her dark curls bounce as she throws her hands up to stop herself against my middle. I drop my little black dog, and she drops her bouquet of dandelions, likely picked from the ball field beside the carnival and probably for her mom. Oh no, are you okay? I bend over to help her pick up her flowers. She grabs up my stuffed dog and hugs it. When we finally make eye contact, she steps back from me. Her dirty pink t-shirt with a faded Charlotte's Web movie poster, the word some pig written in its web, is about four sizes too big for her. Here, I tell her, trying to put the now-wilted flowers back in her hands. When I touch her, she jumps. Run away, run away, run away. The little girl whispers over and over again like some cultish chant. Hey, are you okay? I ask again. But she turns and follows her own instructions. I follow her, trying not to look like some freak. She weaves in and out of the crowd while I slow walk behind. I feel like Jason from Friday the 13th, lumbering after the poor kid who is scared of me, I think. For some reason. At the far end of the oval shaped carnival setup, I see her slip into a canvas tent. There are only a few old school circus type tents anywhere on the grounds. One held a fake oddities exhibit, which I wasted a buck on last year to see bad fake taxidermy and a man sitting in a chair eating a chicken leg. The sign wasn't a lie, I guess, since the incredible man eating chicken could be construed as technically accurate. Other than the oddities tent, this is the only other relic, a small round tent draped in beads and filmy scarves tied corner to corner. The thing looks like one big chrysalis. Somewhere inside this tent is the little thief who took my prize. The faded hand-painted sign leaning against it reads, Psychic Tarot Reading, $10 for reading, $25 to take home your spread. I try to decide what to do while the noise of the carnival continues around me. Looking around, I see a car- I see the carny from the spider game lurking about 10 feet. Away. He's smoking a cigarette. He might be on his break, but he might be following me just like the other guy. I run away. No one is sitting at the table under the umbrella in front of the tent. How do you knock on canvas? I decide you don't. And then I'm, and I'm just as I am about to slip inside, a woman comes out. By the looks of her, I assume it is my little friend's mother. Long, dark walnut colored curls fall to the middle of her back. Her linen palazzo pants are green and spirals have been bleached into her into them and the magic tunic. A scarf similar to the ones hanging along the tent pulls her hair away from her face. It's unbelievably perfect. skin like marble. In fact, she looks like a goddess. One chiseled from stone in ancient Greece come alive. I can't stop staring at her. You want a reading. Her husky voice is powerful and deep. It's missing the smoothness of someone her age. Uh, I don't know. I stammer. How do I tell her I was chasing her daughter because she stole my dinky stuffed dog prize? I saw a little girl run in there and she has... I hold up the droopy yellow weeds as if trying to explain. It wasn't a question, she responds. Sit. She goes back into the tent, so I sit, wondering if this is some gimmick, some mother-daughter trick to bring in customers. When she doesn't return immediately, I begin to feel foolish, stooped and exposed. I check the position of the carny, but he is gone, back to whatever hole he crawled out of. I'm about to stand and slink away quietly when an old woman steps gingerly out of the tent. She is dressed in complimentary fashion to the other females, but in all black. Her white hair has been braided and rolled into a bun on the top of her head, but it's not her clothes or her hair that demands my attention. It's her eyes. They are covered in a white film, both of them. I can't see any color beneath the white, but I can see the bulge of her iris and pupil mounded up off the globe. I assume she is blind, but her daughter didn't come out with her, so maybe not. Maybe they're just some weird cataracts. Either way, I need to stop staring. She finds the empty chair easily and sits with a groan from somewhere beneath a table or within the folds of her skirt, she produces a black velvet bag, which she opens to reveal a pack of well-worn tarot cards. Expertly, she shuffles them. I haven't paid. She hasn't asked me any questions, and I'm almost certain she can't see me. There's nothing keeping me sitting here. I could just sneak away quietly. My friends are probably looking for me. Yet, at the same time, I'm enthralled. The tarot, paganism, witchcraft, it all fascinates me. More so since I've secretly left religion... I do believe there is something out there. The idea that we die and then there is nothing terrifies me. I can't accept that. I've never seen a ghost, but I think I want to. I need to believe in something. It's just so hard to explore other options when all my friends and family are religious. Plus, maybe this is my chance. Plus, this whole thing has been so strange. First the game, the carny, then the girl and her mother. Now this old woman who could be a grandmother or even great-grandmother of the adult woman. And where are the mother and child? Are they hiding in the tent watching me? Split the deck into three, the old woman says, and I do. Pick the stack you want to work with. I'm not sure what to do, so I tap one. She grasps my hand in her warm, leathery grip and rubs her thumb across the back of it. Hmm, so many questions, so much fear and uncertainty. I've out, the little girl, the one who ran into your tent? She took my stuff. She doesn't answer me. Instead, she flips the first card over and runs her hands across the picture of a woman hanging one-legged from a tree. The quarant card. The hanged man is that bad i ask. you are searching for spiritual guidance you do not feel in control you are young early in the fool's journey you face a great test of yourself and your beliefs you must balance what you know with the understanding that there is much you do not know you must be willing to release in order to receive i don't know what that means of course she says i'm looking for spiritual guidance i'm getting a tarot reading she says nothing more instead she deals more cards stopping to touch each one running her fingers along the lines of the illustrations as if she can see them perfectly well as far as i can tell there is no braille on them i read the cards i read the cards as she deals out my fate the tower eight of swords the high priestess five of cups five of wands the devil seven of wands and finally judgment she breathes deep my heart thuds you are a smart girl well read you think rationally and are fiercely independent she pauses okay sure I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything. She holds a gnarled hand up to stop me. You are young and naive. You have much to learn. She touches the tower card, lingering on it. There's trouble. A change is coming. It will shake you up, change you. There will be uncertainty. There will be loss. There will be fear. You must let go of your rational side and seek answers from the spirits. Do not let your independence be your doom. Ask for aid. Do not get lost at the crossroads. Do you hear me, child. I crumple a little. Yes, but I don't know what any of it means. I just came here to get my stuffed dog. The old woman's white, sightless eyes never leave mine. I find myself looking away, staring at her hands or the cards. I know she can't see me, but at the same time, it feels as if she can see so much of me, more than anyone else ever has. It's unnerving. She nods. I'm not sure if she is confirming my thoughts or acknowledging that I want my prize back. Black dogs, snakes, horses, spiders, owls, deer, even butterflies, all messengers from the spirit world. Listen to them. Watch for them when you are in need. So, what's going to happen to me? Those pictures on the cards, they all look bad. There is so much here. I see a victim imprisoned, maybe by your own negative thoughts. But she brushes her fingers across the Eight of Swords with a picture of a blindfolded woman, hands tied behind her back and surrounded by swords. Hmm, she nods and then touches the High Priestess card. This one looks better, more triumphant. The woman looks badass in total control. The voices you hear let them guide you you have drawn the high priestess ask her to guide you she is all things maiden mother crone she is balance. seek her guidance and you may see your trials through to the end yeah but look at these cards they all look bad there's the devil why is all this so bad this carnival held so much potential for fun when we arrived but it seems like a million years ago I'm totally freaked out and I just want my damn stuffed animal back. The old woman picks up the five of cups and pushes it in front of me. You see her? See how she focuses on the spilled cups and not the two she has still filled? You see the moon? The moon is trying to guide her to what she has left inside of her, her strength, which she has not lost. You must not you must not lose sight. There will be pain. There will be loss. It may seem overwhelming, but you must accept the universe accept the help the universe gives you. You must trust in its guidance. Do you understand? No, I don't understand. I don't want to understand. I want to leave all about, I want to leave and forget all about tonight. I stand up. I'm sorry. This is just messing with my head. I thought this would be fun. I I don't know what I thought, but I just, I'm interrupted. Josie, hey. Ange is leading a pack of frustrated appearing friends. You said you'd wait right here. You got to quit getting lost. I'll end it there. I don't want to read too much, but yeah.
1: That was masterful foreshadowing and tying in the meanings yeah. of the tarot cards. I just thought that was a really, really good. Well done. Thank Very you. Very well done. I had
0: a thought. So yeah. maybe maybe um maybe you invented something new. It's not the final girl. Maybe um maybe we need a new new designation we call it the josie girl there you go Ooh, i love it i
1: like that <laughs> yeah.
2: woman
0: girl we should um woman can get we, can,
2: we can work on that you guys yeah. yeah we'll do a we'll do a panel on it next time right we can talk about yeah. the new female hero in horror yeah
0: mm-hmm. there you go. made up by women
2: <laughs> that's right yes For you actually understand what's Right. What's going on in the mind of the final girl, instead of just watching her react.
1: Now I want look
0: a inside. That yeah. it. Love it. I'm a Josie girl.
2: <laughs> yeah. I love it.
0: She well, would love it right. too. I could tell you.
2: 17 year old Josie would be, would be thrilled.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. that's, that's some powerful, powerful writing. Thank you. And that said, that sets up everything. That's
2: just,
0: oh good so good thank you it's very yeah very clever
1: I liked it very much um I in fact had to take out my tarot cards and look at them and see I laid out her spread and I was like oh yeah I see where this is I see yes okay yeah brilliant I carried
2: that spread with me (laughs) like I I carried that spread with me everywhere the whole time writing this book like it would just like again between patients, whatever, just pull it out and stare at them and be like, yeah. And then, you know, there was um, the justice card for a long time in there. And I had to like really kind of, well, I was back and forth, back and forth between different cards and uh, finally settled on this spread. And I, I think it worked out really well. So I'm I'm happy with
1: it. I uh, thought it was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks. Thanks. Well, Evie, thank, thank, you, thank you so much for spending so, so time to spend yes. with us. I know you're Absolutely. a busy lady and yes. we really appreciate mm-hmm. it. Um, Your true story is very inspirational yeah. and your triumph over that just, it blows my mind to know what kind of inner strength you have. Um, Your novella three days in the pink tower is available for purchase and it's a very powerful, I'm mm-hmm. going to call it a dark feminist thriller because that's it. it. And we're all going to have Josie girls from now on. And listeners, awesome. trust me, listeners, this is one that you want to pick up. Um, this is one that you don't want to miss. Um, I could see this becoming a movie. So you want to be able to say you read it before. <laughs> uh-huh. awesome. And Evie, where can our listeners find you and your work?
2: Um, so uh, my website is evnightauthor.com which is has links to all of my books and where you can get them. Um, and then I am on Facebook at Evie Knight Author. And on Twitter and uh, Instagram, same.
1: Wonderful. You can find well, me we'll anywhere. Put, we'll put links in the show notes so everybody can find you. Because we don't awesome. want to miss. What, what do you have going on now? What's next for you,
2: Evie? Oh, well, um, I have a, a few um, shorts coming out in the anthology. Uh, I've been working like mad on a retelling of Dracula uh, with a female Renfeld. Uh, in an asylum with hysteria because again I always have to always <laughs> have to have my strong female character so I'm giving her uh, giving Renfield uh, a new a new makeover and telling it um, from a female standpoint uh, again as an OBGYN in my real life hysteria and the whole idea that you know the whole idea of blood and hysteria coming from the uterus. And like, it just all seemed like, why, why wouldn't that work with Dracula? So I'm working on that. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll get it back. I'll get it out next year. Um, but I'm really trying to, to, to stay very true to, to Bram Stoker's, um, writing and his, his process. So that's taken a lot longer than I thought, um, but that and then uh you know dabbling in a little screenwriting too so we'll see right. where that goes um but that's my that's what I'm I'm, I'm too now but my dracula piece hopefully hopefully end of next year uh we'll see it out but we'll we'll
0: uh, I'm sure been, was a
2: complicated guy you know
0: I've been <laughs> excited about that cuz uh occasionally um you were you were posting some of the yeah. research you were doing, so that was also hitting my um, my academic researching heart. Um, yeah, some of the papers and stuff that you were getting that's,
2: to look at. That's- yeah. That's the thing, like digging up all the, the, the research on like feminism and feminist and the new woman, you know, and Mina. And I, I, I we could do a whole podcast on, on how fascinating all of that is. Um, yeah. but yeah. And, and the problem is, is that I love that stuff so much. I, I end up falling into a rabbit's hole and that's, what's also taking so long too, but, um, yeah. I'm really excited with the idea of the story. Um, so it's, I just need to sit down like, and, and actually do it. <laughs> so, um, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I promise. On oh,
1: it. we're excited for that one. We're going to keep our eyes out for that one, and we will Thanks. have to have you back again yeah. to talk about that.
2: Absolutely, I'll be thrilled, happy, love it. Uh, um,
1: well, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our time with Evie Knight, and I hope you pick up her book. Uh, until next time, stay above ground.